Hey, it's Mark. This week, we're bringing you a double shot of health policy news and analysis. First up, we've got sound bites and takeaways from the Galleon Forum. Held here in Manhattan last Thursday, the forum brought together some notable stakeholders to tackle thorny topics like, why are drug prices so high? Drug pricing is a very complex topic indeed, but that doesn't mean industry shouldn't try to make a dent. Senior reporter Lesha Bushak returns with her regular policy update. The Biden administration is rolling out a new video ad campaign to encourage people to get the latest COVID booster. And I'll discuss a new report that dug into how several large health insurers and pharmacy benefit managers are restricting access to birth control. And for my segment, I'll share a range of drug price fixes vetted by the Galleon experts. I'll also let you know what some big drug makers had to say about the recent drug pricing legislation. And we'll finish up with outtakes from a fireside chat at the Galleon with FDA Commissioner Rob Califf, who weighed in on reimbursement for Alzheimer's treatment in a roundabout sort of way. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. In 1991, Roy Vagelos, then chairman and chief executive officer at Merck, penned a paper for the journal Science entitled, Are Prescription Drug Prices Too High? Prescription medicines remain the least expensive form of therapy, Vagelos noted, yet the U.S. farm industry has been criticized because its products are perceived to be too expensive. He also laid out a directive that remains as relevant today as it was then. Pharma companies, he said, must set responsible prices, must keep price increases down, and must help prove access to important medicines. 30 years later, sticker prices on new medicines that make it across the regulatory finish line are still on the upswing. Public vilification of the industry finally bubbled over this past summer when Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which gives Medicare and Medicaid the power to negotiate prices for some branded drugs. So the speakers at last week's Galleon Forum were far from the first to take up the question of why drug prices are so high. But answering Vagelos's charge from decades ago, they also wanted to know what can industry do to make an impact? Harold Paz, formerly Chief Medical Officer at Aetna, is now EVP of Health Sciences at Stony Brook University of Medicine. He also sits on the corporate bioscience advisory boards of some biopharma companies. Referencing Vagelos's charge, Paz mentioned another source of public frustration. And I think when, when my friend Roy wrote that paper 30 years ago, I think our spending on marketing was about $47 million. The last time I could find data on this, 2006, 2006, it was $5 billion. So as an industry, and, and let me just be very clear, direct-to-consumer advertising has its benefits in terms of patients who have an underlying illness being aware of there being options for them to remind them to take their meds. It, there's evidence that it improves adherence, but there's also a lot of evidence that says it creates a lot of stress and strain and cost on the system. And, you know, as, as a member, I'm going to see patients tomorrow morning. As a member of the AMA, the AMA has come out against direct-to-consumer advertising. It's, it's amplified everything in the public awareness such that I believe that the public looks at this as the tip of the, uh, of the entire iceberg of the cost of health in this country. In 2020, Pharma spent well over $6 billion on advertising. Either way, it's certainly a stark contrast from the pre-DTC days of the early 90s. And whether or not the public is justified in feeling that industry's investment in generating broad awareness of its medicines is in fact the tip of the iceberg, that is the rising cost of health care in this country, 
It's the perception that matters to patients and payers. From the pharma industry standpoint, of course, prices are not too high. Stanley Crook, who founded Ionis Pharma, addressed the industry's annual price increases. Nobody likes price increases every year, but we do it because we need to fill that profit gap. And that's driven by the inefficiency of drug discovery. Uh, and I think the practice that the industry is engaging in, which is in annual price increases in a lot of different places, is very difficult for people to accept any justification. I don't think there's a way to put enough lipstick on that to make it anything but a pig. Crook said the problem is manifold. One, we need to make drug discovery more efficient. The inefficiency of drug discovery continues to be a major, major issue. And I said that publicly first in 1985. And then in 1989, I actually put my money where my mouth is and I founded Ionis. And, you know, the technology we created is vastly more efficient. Um, so uh, I think the answer has to reside in enhancing the productivity of the industry, get the middlemen out of this equation, and put more of the decision-making in the hands of the patient, which is where it belongs. He also thinks too many biotechs are building sales forces. I also question the model. I'm not sure. I don't believe that the FIPCO model is any longer the right model for the industry. And yet every biotech company, except Ionis and now they're doing it, uh, is it, it immediately wants to build another sales force and another commercial organization. My God, we've got more than we need. We don't have the drugs to take advantage of that. And, and so I think um, I actually questioned the whole, whole thing. Uh, and and what, could, what kind of a model could we experiment with that would help create the innovation that is lacking, that is the cause of the, of the price increases? Crook also argued that the wrong people are making the decisions on what healthcare people get. The ones who should really be defining the value of a drug, insists Crook, are the patient and parent, not pricing bodies like NICE or ICER. He suggested giving consumers more choice. I mean, I could imagine something like if you want to take this drug, then your copay for dental will go up. Or, or maybe you don't get the most plush end-of-life hospice. But I think the choice that's being made today is so binary, and it's made by the wrong people. And it's going to continue to be made by the wrong people. But the problem with patient power, said Alexandra von Plato, CEO of Publicis Health, who narrated the discussion, is that even if they could, patients are not equipped to make an educated decision about rationing their own health care. Because there's no true price transparency, and most people are not educated enough. Very few people are. So Von Plato had a suggestion of her own, shifting some of that money spent on talk-to-your-doctor-style awareness messaging over to equipping patients with the kinds of resources they need to navigate what is a very complex system. My hypothesis would be, and my team, we talk about really shifting some of the funds and investment in what's going into traditional DTC to patient engagement and helping people understand how to make more informed choices for themselves and to participate with more confidence in their health care. And this is uh, an investment that needs to be made because people are not going to just get this from the internet. It's going to need to be delivered to them and they're going to have to be brought along. But as we see consumerism come into healthcare. Who is going to create the informed consumers? And what is the role of industry to do their part in that regard? So I, I, you know, I, I offer that up to you as how do we take some of the investment we're making in the traditional marketing and apply it to 
actually, you know, patient engagement and, and making patients more equipped. Education is great, but we're asking people to become educated about a system that in some ways seems detached from good medicine. Here's Michael Rosenblatt, senior partner at Flagship Pioneering and formerly the chief medical officer at Merck, talking about the donut hole in Medicare. You're sick, you need medicine, you're paid. Then if you continue to be sick, you have to pay more out of pocket. And then if you continue after that to be sick, you're covered again. It doesn't make sense. And we have tiers of drugs, some of which you get very good reimbursement and some of which you get very poor as far as I can tell, it's not related to the illness or the severity. So you're asking people to, so education would be great. You're asking people to be educated and informed about their illness and the value of the drug. But then it's all uh, operating on top of a platform, which I think probably nobody up here even understands fully. With the pharma panelists agreeing that too much is spent on DTC and not enough on helping get the right patient on the right drug at the right time and keeping them on the right drug, Von Plato seized the opportunity to call on the panel members to push for a better return on their marketing investment. Shifting the focus of what has been traditionally marketing to patient engagement that supports patients' care and understanding, engages patients in their treatment, and enables them to have a better outcome as a result of the communications expenditure is is something that's uh, that's a per- that could become a bigger priority and a bigger focus for what is now a tr- traditionally the marketing budget, which is focused on sales, not on patient support and patient services. And so, how does the industry participate, you know, more deliberately in what has been the provider space, you know, helping a patient understand what their condition is, what their treatment is, how to understand and anticipate side effects, how to stay adherent, all of those touch points along the patient journey that can be extrapolated and patient can be engaged around. We've learned how to do that. I think as an industry, we're just now starting to put an investment focus on doing that uh, better and better, more efficiently, more effectively to the better outcomes for patients. Harold Paz agreed that shifting more marketing spend from DTC to disease awareness is a step in the right direction. When he was at Aetna in 2016, Paz spearheaded what was one of the country's first value-based care agreements on Merck diabetes drug Genuvia. It was so groundbreaking, he recalled, that then Merck CEO Ken Frazier got involved in negotiations as well. The deal not only landed Paz on the cover of MM&M that year, it also created what he feels is a blueprint for the rest of the industry to better align drug prices with value. He'd like to see more value-based reimbursement. As it stands, only 11 or 12% of reimbursement is truly value-based. Commercial payers are getting more into this space, but by and large, most of what we do is still fee-for-service reimbursement. And that creates, I think, a lot of the challenges that we face across all of healthcare in America, and very unique and different than many other places in the world. There's been a lot of effort to get those contracts to work, but if they do, it would help get multiple players on the same page in helping produce the best patient outcome for the money spent, Paz said. Moving uh, more of the dollars in the marketing budget from direct-to-consumer advertising to disease awareness campaigns is, is one step in that direction. At the same time, I want to be realistic. Think about the all the marketing we did around vaccination, around mask wearing. It's not that simple either. And I think that 
that's an understatement. Um, and um, I think that a big piece of this is, is predicated on trust. If, as a patient, you have a trusted relationship with a provider, it doesn't have to be a physician, it could be a nurse, it could be someone in the healthcare system in this country, the likelihood of that information having an impact on your ability to take better care of yourself is only amplified. And I think that um, there is no simple solution here, but it underscores what Mike said earlier about the role that the provider has to play in this entire equation if we're going to be successful. And again, it, for me, it's another reason why we have to move more and more to a value-based world to bring everybody together to work in collaborative teams. A thread running through the forum was whether politics could have a chilling effect on pipelines. Unsurprisingly, the speakers were fairly unified in saying that they don't expect Congress's recently passed Inflation Reduction Act to accomplish much in the way of affordability. Here's Michael Rosenblatt explaining why. So I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. If you have a working person in the United States, income $60,000, so low uh, wage, salaried worker who gets insurance through their employer, that person is probably taking home $40,000, $45,000 after taxes. They have a family of four, so they're paying insurance of about $10,000. They have a deductible of between two and $4,000 for the first expenses in the year. Now, somebody in that family gets cancer. And they need a drug that costs $50,000, which, by the way, is not the most expensive cancer drug. And they have to pay 20%, 20% copay. So now they're paying $10,000. They wind up, by my calculations, of about $25,000 in their pocket. They don't have freedom to choose about anything. And, uh, and they are really on the verge of bankruptcy, working person insured. If we cut the price, if we're the czar of healthcare, say we're going to cut the price of that drug by half, it doesn't make any difference mm -hmm. to that person. They're still bankrupt. To be sure, the act did cap out-of-pocket spending for Medicare patients as well as close the donut hole in Part D drugs. But the new law could have a chilling effect on certain kinds of R&D, i.e. incentivizing investment away from oral drugs and toward specialty biologics. Eli Lilly's CEO David Ricks made that point earlier this year, and now it was Merck's CEO Rob Davis's turn. Davis spoke on a subsequent panel along with BMS CEO Giovanni Caforio. That's something that I think as an industry we need to keep driving for more investment in the reduction of out-of-pocket costs and protecting innovation. And in that spirit, the one part of the, uh, of the Inflation Reduction Act that is worrisome is now the fact that they have what was termed negotiation, which frankly isn't negotiation, it's price setting. Um, after a period of time, nine years if you're a small molecule, you know, uh, 13, 13 if, you're, if you're large. And I can tell you for us, in the near term, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act isn't going to affect our business that much. But strategically, long term, both our business and the industry, I do think it's going to have a chilling effect because it's changing the way you have to think about how you invest in discovery development. 
It's changing the way you think between large and small molecule. I'll give one example. I know Giovanni shares this with me because we've talked about this. Think about how cancer drugs are developed. It tends to be that you find an area where you say, I believe I have a hypothesis. I will go to where I can prove it the fastest. That's often in the smallest tumor types, not areas, frankly, that you're doing to make money. But you're trying to prove the effect. Once you prove it, you then do subsequent studies to broaden it, extend it, deepen it. Mm. If you look for our drug, Keytruda, you know, we're now almost, what, it launched in 2014-ish, um, you know, about halfway through its life. We're less than halfway through the development program. Mm. I don't know if in the future you'll be able to do that where you keep investing in follow-on indications, and that concerns me because patients who have those needs could be could be hurt, or frankly, those smaller indications up front. As a pharma company, you very well might say, I can't go after those, I can't make my money there, so I'm going to have to go for the bigger opportunity down the road. However that ends up playing itself out, there will be losers in future patients who are going to be held back from getting the innovation they need. Flesh is up next with her policy update, and when I come back, FDA Commissioner Rob Califf and the drug that shall not be named. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. There are fears of a triple-demic this year as flu cases, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, and COVID are expected to continue rising into the winter months. But the number of people getting the updated COVID booster is way smaller than public health officials hoped. Update your your COVID vaccine. It's incredibly effective, but the truth is not enough people are getting it. We've got to change that so we can all have a safe and healthy holiday season. Only about 10% of the population eligible for the new boosters have received one. The Biden administration is aiming to tackle that by ruling out a new ad campaign that targets specific groups to fight vaccine hesitancy, including black communities and people living in rural areas. As part of the initiative, Walgreens will also partner with Uber and DoorDash to deliver Paxlovid to homes in rural or underserved areas. Several big-name health insurers and pharmacy benefit managers are limiting access to birth control, a new investigation from the House Oversight and Reform Committee finds. Those health care stakeholders are putting cost-sharing requirements on more than 30 birth control products, meaning they're making patients cover part of the cost of the drug or else restricting coverage. The Affordable Care Act tries to prevent this from happening as it requires health insurers to cover contraceptive options that are FDA-approved at no cost to the patients. But with cost-sharing requirements, in some cases patients are paying up to $200 or more for certain pills or for non-pill contraception like Torla. Some of the insurers identified in the report included United Health, Anthem, Cigna, and others. The Biden administration has vowed to increase access to contraception in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And the federal government has recently doubled down on guidance to insurers that they must give access to birth control at no cost to the patient, threatening to enforce those rules if companies don't comply. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MM&M. Dr. Rob Califf, FDA commissioner, was asked during a fireside chat about the growing collaboration between his agency and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services around something called coverage with evidence development. Even though the drug wasn't mentioned by name, it was obvious that Califf was being asked about Biogen's Alzheimer's Med Aduhelm, which was approved under accelerated approval, but plagued by uncertain clinical evidence. 
It was Medicare's very limited coverage decision for Adjahelm that proved to be the final nail in the commercial coffin for the drug, whose primary patient population was seniors. Was this situation where FDA approves a drug and CMS essentially declines to pay for it a one-off? Is there a growing collaboration between FDA and CMS? We're spending $4.1 trillion a year. Can't be that all $4.1 trillion are being well spent. And very often, you know, because of accelerated approvals, we don't really know what the full breadth of the use of a product ought to be or how it compares with other options. So why should we leave that to marketing? I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me when people's lives are at stake. And, you know, 15 years ago when I talked about this, we were, it was like, we're number one and we should do things better. Now it's, we're in last place. You know, we got to wake up and accept that fact and, and behave differently. And I think a good handoff from FDA to CMS is a critical thing, given the proportion of the population that's now covered by uh, Medicare or Medicaid in this country. So um, I'd love to see us in the later stages of development, sort of the clinical studies that get done are moving into a phase where post-market there's still evidence generation going on. And that, you know, exactly what ought to be done is a matter of, you know, what was done pre-market and um, what the state of play is um, out in clinical practice. Was Caliph talking about Aduhelm? It's follow-up Alzheimer's drug Lecanemab? You decide. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.